got a doggo and want to support the pato? Use the affiliate link in our show notes, BarkBox.com backslash Jacob Stanley, that's Jacob with a K, and sign up for BarkBox. Each month, BarkBox brings your dog more than $40 worth of toys, treats, and chews tailored especially for your pup, curated from each month's unique themed collection. Is your puppers into Stranger Things? Would they dig on some Bego waffles or a demo bat? Maybe they prefer the Wizarding World of Harry Potter and want a sorting hat or a Hedwig of their very own. So click on the link in our show notes, BarkBox.com backslash Jacob Stanley, that's Jacob with a K, or go to our website, JacobStanley.com, and use the link provided to help support our pod and bring monthly dog joy right to your door. Oh, and by using our link, you get an additional month free. That's BarkBox.com backslash Jacob Stanley. In October of 2011, four college students disappeared in the woods near Porter Township, Pennsylvania, while researching a documentary on children's author Jacob Stanley. They remain missing to this day. Last month, their recordings appeared online. If anyone has information on those missing or the identity of the person or persons who uploaded these files, please use the contact information provided. Anything submitted may be used in future episodes. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcasters and participants and do not represent the official policy or position of the Iphigenia County Police Department of Porter Township, Pennsylvania, or its associates. This week, we are breaking from the recovered files of Tell Me a Story, The True Life of Jacob Stanley to share with you an episode of the 1985 investigative TV series, America Unanswered. The show's producers have granted us permission to re-air the program in the hopes that this episode entitled Following the Light, Pennsylvania's Croatoan, will help provide insight into the relatively unknown religious sect, the Light, who ran Porter Township's Mendenhall Institute. The following episode of America Unanswered aired only once. The show was then abruptly cancelled. This is the only known copy. This broadcast is about America's most infamous unanswered questions. The following should not be considered a news program. Tonight, on America Unanswered, we travel to Porter Township, Pennsylvania to explore the history of the Mendenhall Institute and its enigmatic founders, The Light. From their curious beginnings to mysterious disappearance, could you hold the key to unlocking the mystery of the Mendenhall's vanishing staff and patients? The severity of these situations requires that great care be taken. These questions will be difficult to answer, but perhaps you can help. Join me and you might be able to answer America's greatest unanswered questions.
Deep in the heart of Iphigenia County lies the dairy farm community of Porter Township. This small town of only a few hundred inhabitants is home to some of Pennsylvania's darkest secrets. This is Grant W. Haas, a professor of arcane religions and one half of a husband and wife duo researching the light. He and his wife, occult historian Addison G. Haas, have been hard at work on a book about the history of Porter Township, the Mendenhall, and this Kabbalistic group. Opening in 1901, the Mendenhall was built by the pseudoscientific spiritual ministry known as The Light. To this day, little is known about this secret cult, but this couple plan on changing that. The Light has a very mysterious origin story. We know they referred to themselves as a religious sect, but they seem to have been more of an amalgamation of religion and various pseudosciences, a spiritual ministry with elements of homeopathy and parapsychology. They were particularly inspired by the works of German physician Samuel Hahnemann. Uh, he conceived of the concept of homeopathy. This speculates that what triggers symptoms of an illness in a healthy person could also cure those symptoms in the infirm. Like cures like. Some historians have speculated it was Hahnemann himself who first started the light, but we haven't seen substantive evidence of that fact. I believe it was merely an acolyte, perverting Hahnemann's theory of similia similitas corentor for their own megalomaniacal aims. Megalomaniacal indeed. The light first appears in recorded history by way of a flyer from the mid-1800s, advertising a faith healing service. They began as a kind of traveling tent revival. For many years, they traversed the U.S., led by an individual referred to only as the Father. <laughs> yes, not very original. They offered to heal the sick and mentally ill with a combination of spiritualism, faith, and pseudoscience, picking up new members as they traveled across the country. Which on its own isn't incredibly interesting. But what is interesting is that they would often take in those mentally ill patients themselves and bring them along on their tour. For a significant donation. Yes, for a significant donation, of course. The light would take in the family member for treatment. Now, to put this in context, it was the late 1800s. The Civil War had only just ended in medical, science, psychology. They were nowhere near where they are today. At the time, many medical conditions and mental health issues weren't even known to be medical conditions and mental health issues. And, and families at the time were ill-prepared to provide proper care. After such a devastating experience of mass death like the Civil War, people became extremely vulnerable to anyone offering answers. The Civil War was almost single-handedly responsible for the rise of spiritualism in America, just as World War I triggered its rise in Europe. Those in mourning needed a way to process their loss. And spiritualism offered more than the church could, which makes what the light did even more abhorrent. They knew people were at their most vulnerable, and they used that to their advantage. The light were very shrewd. They knew exactly how to play to their audiences in different locations, even altering their name to appeal to a variety of crowds. Uh, for example, in the Bible Belt, they were known as the light of his word and would lean into the Pentecostal, tent revival, faith healing aspect of their religion. In the Northeast, they were just referred to as the light, 
and they would play into spiritualism and pseudoscience. They must have made quite the impression, because by 1897, they were financially able to begin construction on the Mendenhall Institute. But why Pennsylvania? And why was the small, undeveloped Porter Township in rural Iphigenia County chosen as their new spiritual home? They were given the land. It was granted to them through a trust, but there aren't many records we can reference. Well, we can theorize that there were possibly members of the light who held high-level government offices in Porter Township, and that's how they received the grant. Uh, but so far, we've been unable to substantiate that um, possibility. In our next segment, we hear the story from the inside as we speak to an employee of the ill-fated Mendenhall Institute. Mendenhall was founded on the idea that the best way to help the mentally ill is through solitude and physical labor. It's why they had so much land. It provided them proper room for a farm. All of their needs could be met all in one place. Uh, their very own one-stop shop. This is Connie King, a former employee of the Mendenhall. My family has worked there since the beginning. My mom worked there. My grandma worked there. My great-grandfather worked there. You know, my my grandma always used to say, um, any job you did at the Mendenhall is God's work. <laughs> From the doctors seeing patients to staff scrubbing the floors. You know, we were all there to provide hope to the hopeless, to give to those creatures that the, the world has turned its back on. Little did Connie know of the true intent of the Mendenhall's creators. They were... Very private <laughs> and reserved, yes. There was um, a clear line between the local staff and the nurses and the doctors. Only followers of the light were allowed to hold high-level positions at the Mendenhall. Locals were hired on as custodians and to do other menial jobs. They were all so very dedicated. Uh, the core staff never left the grounds. Never. And uh, the locals would invite them out for dinner or a night off or this or that, and they wouldn't go. Oh, they were all very nice about it. No one was ever rude, all very respectful of each other. The members of the light lived on site and were not permitted to leave the grounds under any circumstances. But it was the doctors and the nurses' dedication to those patients. That is what was really awe-inspiring. To clarify, no one who worked at the Institute was an accredited doctor or nurse. None of them had any sort of medical license or training. In the early morning of November 6, 1981, the local employees arrived for work, only to find a locked gate. They tried for several hours to enter and to contact those inside, but to no avail. Eventually, the police were called. Upon arriving, they were able to remove the gate and carefully entered the grounds. This is where stories begin to diverge. Everyone interviewed seems to have conflicting accounts of the following events. Police say they cordoned off the entire site and none of the local employees were allowed to enter. While most employees clearly remember being on the grounds. 
Some even remember entering buildings, helping police. Then, of course, there are the wild rumors that, since we can't corroborate them, they we prefer not to talk about. We were all over. You know, looking here, looking there. No. Didn't find anyone. The only place left to search was the staff residence, and I remember thinking, the troopers aren't ever going to find it. It's a maze to get down there, and it's always locked up tight. Well, we never had any need to go in there, so the live-in staff were the only ones with keys. With the exception of my gran. She had a key. When she first started working there, she found a key on one of the patients. At the time, she was only 18 and terrified that they were going to think that she stole it and fire her. So she did the only thing that she could think of. (laughs) Gran hid it in her bra and went home and taped it underneath her mom's china cabinet. And I still had that cabinet. So without a thought, I took off her home, grabbed the key, and I led the troopers right to the staff residence. And here is where the great mystery of the missing staff and patients begins. entrance, it was all silent. Troopers were all looking at each other like they knew this was going to be bad. It's worth mentioning, there were very few patients when the Great Disappearance occurred, but live-in staff numbers had more than tripled over the years. I unlocked the door, and we started going through the room. It was not at all like I had pictured it. I thought that it was going to be spare, but, you know, still comfy, like a fancy convent, but no. It was set up like a a military barracks, like all these long rooms with all these bunk beds all in a row. No decorations or pictures. Every bed exactly the same. Every bed had the same blanket. We looked and looked, but there was not a soul to be found. It was like right out of a horror movie. This is known locally as Pennsylvania's Croatoan. But unlike the lost colony of Roanoke, the staff and patients of the Mendenhall left no message carved in a tree. They simply vanished. Based on police reports, when they searched the grounds, they found no one. No patients, no staff, Even the barn was empty, and no sign as to what had happened came out. No records, no files, no charts, no food or supplies. It was like the building had never been occupied. Then we finished looking through the staff quarters, and we got to the entrance to the tunnel system, and that... Well, that's when they sent us home. Deep beneath the Mendenhall lies a series of complex tunnels. This labyrinthine system is made of cut stone and spans the entire institute, connecting all the buildings from below. However, they were not built for the Mendenhall. 
The tunnels existed long before the Institute began construction. In fact, the architect of the Mendenhall designed the entire facility around the layout of those tunnels. All local land records before Porter Township's incorporation in 1817 were destroyed in a courthouse fire. Because of this, the origin of the tunnel system is completely unknown. We only know they were there before the Mendenhall was constructed and are still there to this day. And if I'm being honest, I was perfectly fine with not going into those tunnels. I just wanted to get the heck out of there. It was just too eerie, too quiet, and it was, it was warm. It was just so warm. It was, it was just so warm. In our next segment, we will hear a story from a Porter Township resident who came face to face with an escaped patient from the Mendenhall. out like any other day. I was up early, brewing the coffee before the rest of the house was up, when I noticed this movement in the backyard. And I, I couldn't see because the lights were on in the kitchen, so I turned the lights out, and I saw this half-naked woman standing out there in the backyard. This is... <laughs> We believe that the tunnels held deep religious significance to the land. But we haven't been able to figure out the exact connection. It could possibly have something to do with the origin of the stones. The stones used for the construction of these tunnels were cultivated from Porter Township's own local quarry. It has long been believed that the town's booming quarry industry began because of the tunnel system. But evidently, that was not the case. Porter Township has the rather unsettling honor of being the only town in the state of Pennsylvania known for its many unofficial witch trials and the execution of hundreds of witnesses. The woman would later be identified as Tandy Sewell, a patient who had just escaped from the Mendenhall Institute. My first thought was, where are those girls' clothes? My next thought was, oh. She must have come down from the Mendenhall. That would happen every now and again. Oh, but not in my backyard, but, you know. During the time of the famous Salem witch trials, witchcraft wasn't even a capital offense in the state of Pennsylvania. But when the state's founder, William Penn, died in 1718, all of that changed. In 1718, the Pennsylvania Assembly adopted English law and created a new list of capital offenses, which now included witchcraft. And Porter Township became a hub, a source, for the execution of witches. But how does the town's quarry come into play? She must have seen me, or saw the light go out. 
and she headed dead straight for that back point. Even though witch burning was popular, most of Porter Township's first settlers were English, and it was a commonly held belief in England that the only way to assure a witch could not come back from the grave was to place a large stone over the body of the deceased. So that is exactly what Porter Township did. I tried to head her off, but by the time I got there, she was already on the porch. So I lock up the main door and I go and call the police. And since the practice of witch persecution was looked down upon by most of the state, believers in other towns traveled from all across Pennsylvania to bring their witches to Porter Township to be executed. The high demand for witch executions and interring was looked upon as a business opportunity by the leaders of Porter. And thus, the quarry was born. Late that night, they come to find her at the base of Great Cliff. So, the misogynistic custom of persecuting women for witchcraft laid the entire groundwork for Porter Township's financial stability. She must have lost her footing on account of having no shoes on and just slipped right down. I remember that day so well. It was the dead of winter. It was so warm. In our final segment, we hear the story of a desperate woman longing to discover what happened to her sister, who disappeared from the Mendenhall. of research, the team of Grant and Addison Haas have met countless family members of those whose loved ones never returned from the Mendenhall. But none so heartbroken as Dorothy Jansen. Dorothy Jansen reached out to us several years ago. Her sister Alice was one of the patients who disappeared from the Mendenhall in 1981. She had heard about our project from the families of other victims and wanted to help us in any way she could. Dorothy had contracted polio as a child, and her only friend was her sister Alice. The loss was so great she felt a desperate need to find out the truth. Alas, Dorothy Jensen is no longer with us, but her story and that of her sister Alice lives on. The Hasses have continued to carry the torch and have made it their mission to find out what happened to her long-lost sister. We conducted many interviews with Dorothy and uh, recorded her reading from the letters of her sister, uh, which she had sent while she was still a patient at the Mendenhall. The specific details of how the light conducted their rituals is unknown. But based on information compiled from partial documents discovered in the tunnels of the Mendenhall and additional letters from Dorothy's sister, Grant and Addison Haas have developed a rough sketch of the internal structure and belief system of the light. Their basic hierarchical framework can best be explained as a series of concentric circles with several levels within each. 
Uh, the goal being to rise within the sect, moving closer to the center as they became more enlightened. My dearest Dorothy, I write to you from a place of complete and utter joy in my impending enlightenment. The innermost circle is what they consider their spirit guide, a god-type figure on the other side of the mortal veil, referred to often as uh, the Ayla, sometimes as the Esmeré. It is impossible to put these feelings into words, especially to someone who couldn't begin to understand. How do you explain colors to those who cannot see? How do you explain music to those who cannot hear? The next circle of their hierarchy are for the headmasters, led by an individual referred to only as the father. father. Uh, the work of members in this circle was to extract and interpret the knowledge from the other side through mediumship with members of the next circle, those known as the conduits, who helped facilitate the word from the spirit guide. Then from there, the next circle were the apostles. They disseminated the teachings from the headmasters and were in charge of cultivating the flock, choosing new possible conduits for the headmasters to use. My dearest Dorothy, although the roaring of my distraught mind has not ceased, I have instead befriended it through the teachings of the Father, using acceptance, affirmations, and daily sessions with the circle. I have found rule and profound peace. The outermost circle and lowest level in the hierarchy were called the believers, or the flock, and they constituted the majority of the members of the light. My dearest Dorothy, I feel liberated, as if this burden is no burden at all, and should have never been seen as such. I no longer feel the shame I have carried with me my entire life. I am not what is broken. The world is broken. But we will heal it. We will spread the light far and wide, bringing these revelations to this universe. It appears that the light believe that the veil between the lands of the living and the dead was the thinnest for those who were considered to be mentally ill. So the mentally ill were ideal candidates to be used to contact the other side through a type of physical mediumship. Uh, Mendenhall patients that they deemed as having the thinnest of veils were usually used in this capacity and therefore were indoctrinated into the light as conduits. Our work at the Institute is of the utmost importance, and I have pledged to devote my entire life on Earth and beyond to its teachings. We theorized that they considered that anyone could potentially be a conduit. It was just whether or not they could realize their full potential. And let us not forget Hahnemann, Similia Similibus Corentor, like yours like. So they believed that by surrounding themselves with the mentally ill that their own veils would become thinner and then they themselves could become conduits. That was the ultimate aspiration for all 
members of the light. You see, when I cross, my spirit will continue this great work. Death is not an ending. But a continuation, a new beginning. Our bodies are mere shells, shells to be shed in order to reveal our true light. Why mourn a broken shell left behind in a broken world? This energy is everlasting. By harnessing this power from the living and the dead, uh, they seemed to be attempting to create a psychic battery, if you will. A battery so powerful that to any who wielded, death means nothing. Death means nothing. Life means nothing. Death means nothing. Life means nothing. Death means nothing. Life means nothing. There is only the light. Tonight's stories are questions without answers, missing that crucial lead. Perchance one of our viewers might expose the truth. Perchance it's you. Thanks again to the producers of America Unanswered for allowing us to share this episode. We will return September 7th. In the interim, we will be updating this podcast feed with messages received via our tip line and any additional developments. So stay tuned. This has been Tell Me a Story, The True Life of Jacob Stanley. Thank you for listening. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcasters and participants. If anyone has information on those missing or the identity of the person or persons who uploaded these files, please use the contact information provided. Anything submitted may be used in future episodes. Tell me a story. The True Life of Jacob Stanley is a bi-weekly podcast produced by Sylvia Whitaker. Please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have information on the missing, know the identity of the person or persons who uploaded these files, have a theory about the case, or have had your own unexplainable experiences in Iphigenia County, Pennsylvania, we want to hear from you. Please record a message via our website www.jacobstanley.com Messages may be used in future episodes. Voices will be altered and names redacted to protect your anonymity. For information on upcoming episodes, follow us on Instagram at Jacob Stanley Podcast or on Twitter at inappropriate F.